Well, welcome to week seven of our series, Thy Kingdom Come. We're going to make a slight transition this week. Actually, it's a major transition because we're going to fast forward to the end. Uh, we're going to take a look at what the kingdom is going to look like when it finally arrives in its full glory and its final consummation. But this morning, um, I was out on a run and this verse came to me. And I, I know what you're thinking, that man does not look like he runs, but I do. And on my run, this verse popped into my head and I want to read it to you. It's one you're very familiar with and we're, we'll actually kind of beat this verse to death in a couple of months when we celebrate Christmas. It says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, as you can imagine. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among who, with whom He is pleased. Now, what I want you to stop and think about is if you had been one of those shepherds in the field and this incredible sign took place, the angel appears and he speaks to you and then he's joined by the heavenly host, thousands upon thousands of fellow angels, and they sing this song and, and they talk about the coming of the Messiah and they give glory to God talking about His coming, that He has arrived, what would go through your mind? Well, hopefully based on everything we've studied over the last six weeks, you would think like a Jew and you would go, He's here. It's time. The kingdom is here. And yet, even though they would run to Bethlehem and they would see the baby in the manger and they would give glory to God for what they were allowed to see, we do know this, that at no point in their lives did they ever see the kingdom come in its glory. So these shepherds, while excited about what they had seen, and they went and told everybody what they had seen, in time they realized that this young boy who grew to be a man never did fully bring the kingdom that they were expecting as Jews. And so that's why this lesson is so important as we move forward, because we're, we're going to talk about the final kingdom, the, the final phase of the kingdom, now, we talked about last week that there's, there's all kinds of debate about is, it, is the kingdom present or is it future? Is it spiritual or is it physical? Is it about an individual thing or is it about a community or communal aspect? And, and the answer to all those questions is yes, we talked about that. See, there's a mystery to the kingdom that it's now but not yet. It's here but not in its fullness. It's been inaugurated but it hasn't been fully consummated. And so what I want to do is we're going to kind of just jump forward and talk about what the final kingdom is going to look like. This whole idea of thy kingdom come, you know, that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, it, it, it begs the question that, you know, well, it, it's not here yet. If I'm praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it seems to suggest that it's not here. Well, we know it is here in the sense that when Jesus Christ came, he brought the kingdom with him because he's the king. But it didn't take the form that everybody expected. It, it didn't come as a, a kingdom like the, the Jews wanted. He didn't set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. He didn't get rid of the Romans. And so 
it's here, but it's in a different form. And as he later told Pilate in his trial, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. He's a different kind of king. And so what we want to find out is, is the kingdom already here or is it yet to come? And of course, as we've said, the answer to that question is basically yes. Why? Well, look at this. Is it already here? Listen to what Jesus says. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? They're expecting something significant to happen. The, king, the king's going to show up, the Messiah, Mashiach, and he's going to set up his kingdom. When? And Jesus replied, listen carefully what he says. The kingdom of God cannot be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you or in your midst. He doesn't say he's in you. That's how some of the um, translations render that phrase. It, it's literally, he's in, it's in your midst. It's among you. It's already here. How? In the form of the king. See, the Messiah has arrived. So it's here, but is it yet to come? And, and we know the answer to that question, right? At least I hope we do, that there is an aspect of the kingdom that's yet to come. How do we know that? Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's referencing His Father's kingdom. He's referencing the kingdom of God and its future. And He's, he's saying this to the, the disciples at that final meal, the final Passover meal He had with them. And He's telling them that one day we will drink of the fruit of the vine together in my Father's kingdom. See, at that point in time, that kingdom was not here in fullness. It, it was not complete. It was not finally culminated. So it's yes to both of those. It's, it's here in a form, but there's another form to come. So again, is it here or yet to come? Yes. Are we already in it? Are we looking forward to it? Yes. <laughs> and, and that's the mystery of the kingdom, guys. It, it's it's not simplistic. It's not, we just can't say, no, it's all here. No, it's all later. You know, there's so many hymns that I, I sung growing up that, that really make the, the idea of the kingdom of God all future and the sweet by and by, you know, that, that on Jordan's stormy shores I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's faring heavenly land where my possessions lie. It's all out there, but it's both. It's here and it's there. And again, we have to look closely at what Jesus had to say about these things. And what I want to do is I want to look at um, Matthew chapter 24. This is a part of a series of chapters, 24, 25, and 26, where Jesus, near the end of His life, is trying to convey to His disciples some things about the future that they don't yet understand. Now, I'm not going to be able to unpack every verse in this passage, and I'm not going to be able to explain every difficult um, context but what I want you to see is what He's telling His disciples before His death and before His resurrection and ascension, trying to prepare them and help them to understand about what the kingdom is really going to look like. So it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So as they're walking past the temple, on their way out of Jerusalem, the disciples noticed the glory and the beauty of Solomon's temple, or Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed. 
and, and it's a beautiful place. It's, it's a revered place. It's the house of God. And so they comment on the beauty of it. And Jesus drops this bombshell that, no, I tell you, there will not be left one stone upon another. It's going to be destroyed, is what he's telling them, which was a shock to their system. And then they pass through the gate on the east side of Jerusalem, and they go to the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley, just a stone's throw away. And he sits down with them, and he says to them privately, they, they ask him this question, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what's on their mind? They've just heard Jesus say the temple's going to be destroyed. And, and they want to know, okay, when's all this going to happen? What's the re relationship between that and you setting up your kingdom? That's really the point of this whole passage in their minds. They're still obsessed with and thinking about Jesus setting up His earthly kingdom, setting up His throne in Jerusalem and ruling there just like King David. So they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? But they ask this question, when? When will these things be? What things? What Jesus just said about the destruction of the temple, when's that going to happen? And then they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? So does that happen before you set up your kingdom? Does it happen after you set up your kingdom? So everything's related to what? Their hope for and expectation of His earthly kingdom. And so Jesus is going to go, in, go on and explain. They want a sign. They want to see something. And in, in the Greek, that word semion means this. It's, it's going to convey imagery that they can see that will tell them what they want is about to happen. So they're asking, what should we be looking for? What should we be seeking? How will we know if you don't give us a sign? Is the destruction of the temple the sign? When that happens, will that be the point at which you set up your kingdom? And, and it's, not a, it's not a hard leap for them to think the, an enemy is going to have to destroy the temple. And if an enemy destroys the temple, are you going to then appear as the king we've been longing for you to, to appear as and discipline this enemy? And all, albeit it's, they're thinking Rome. So again, they, they're looking for what's the sign? Does this come first? Does it come after? What will be the sign of your coming? And, and that phrase is pretty important too because it's a word, parousia, that we, we associate with the second coming. It's, it's typically used in the New Testament in regards to the second coming of Christ. But, but it has a, another meaning that I think is more appropriate for this context. It literally means advent or presence. So what will be the sign of your presence? Presence as what? The King, the Messiah. How will we know when you are what we hope you to be? Because as they look at him right now, he looks like an itinerant rabbi. He doesn't look like a king. He's not acting like a king. So they're looking for what will be the sign. What will be the sign of your arrival as the king? That's what they want to know. And I think to a certain degree, when he made that triumphal entry, they thought that was it. But it still hasn't happened. He's still not sitting on a throne. He's still done nothing to get rid of the Romans. And they're not looking for a second coming, right? Because he hasn't even showed up yet as, at his first coming. They're still waiting for him to show up as king. And, and yet, it hadn't happened yet. They're hopeful. They're expectant. 
But see, they're not talking about a second coming. When we hear that word parousia or coming, we think second coming. They're thinking about first coming. And when are you going to show up as the king? And their concept of the end of the age, this term that they used, is associated with the coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, it will set up the end of the age. Not some cataclysmic, apocryphal end of the age, but the end of the age in the sense that the Messiah will come and do all the things that the Scriptures seem to promise. He would defeat their enemies. He would reign on David's throne. He would extend the dynasty of David forever. He would bring peace to the world and put Israel back in power. That's what they think of in the end of the, end of the age. So they're not asking about heaven. They're not thinking about some you know, ethereal place somewhere out in the ether. They're, they're thinking about an earthly kingdom. They're always thinking about an earthly kingdom. And so they're referencing the age to come, the age in which Israel will be back in power and the Messiah will sit on David's throne. That's what they're thinking about, the time of Messiah's rule. So you've got to remember this as we, as we think about the end. They have an idea of the end just like we have an idea of the end, and Jesus is going to help clear it up for them. They're still expecting Him to set up a kingdom on earth. But again, as we said last week, that's not what He came to do. He will, but that's in the future, which is where this whole lesson is headed. Look at Ephesians 1, 20-21. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, He, God, raised Him, Jesus, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's that, that kind of phrase of this age and the age to come, the coming age. What's going on here? Well, I love this from D.R. Brown and M. Custis and M.M. Whitehead and their commentary on Ephesians. Listen to what they say. This phrase, this age, the age to come describes a Jewish understanding of the cosmos. With the term this age, the biblical author refers to the period of history in which he finds himself, this age. We live in this age. A period characterized by evil, rebellion, wickedness, and darkness. In contrast, the age to come refers to the period that will follow God and His Messiah's eschatological intervention at the end of history which will be characterized by life, peace, righteousness, and light. Now again, they have a different concept than we do. Theirs is associated with the coming of the Messiah, whom the disciples believe to be Jesus. And if He is the Messiah, then He's come to do these things, bring life, peace, righteousness, and light. Where is it? When will it come? What will be the sign? Does the temple get destroyed first or afterwards? How will we know? When are you going to do it? See, that's all of that's just flying through their minds as they're still wrestling with what do we look for? What is the sign? They're looking for a sign, a symbol, some, some way of knowing that your kingdom is here. And so far they haven't seen it. And they're disappointed. They're, they're frustrated. When will you do all the things we've been waiting for you to do? Well, then Jesus goes on in this passage. He says, you're going to hear of, of wars and rumors of wars, you're going to see that you're not alarmed by that. In other words, you're going to hear all kinds of stuff coming, guys. And Jesus is thinking about His departure, that when He leaves and leaves them behind, a lot of stuff's going to happen that's going to further ag aggravate 
and confuse them. Because he says, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. That phrase is huge. The end has not yet come, and guess what? After I leave, it will not yet come. So he's letting them know, he's kind of setting them up to understand that, guys, you've got to be patient. You've got to change your mind. Repent of what you think about the kingdom, because it's going to be far different than what you expect. Then he goes on and he says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now think about this. Is this what the disciples want to hear? No. Any more than you and I want to hear this. He's basically saying, it's going to get worse. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to ascend back to my rightful place at the Father's side, and then all of this is going to happen. It's going to get squirrely on the planet. And, and, and again, they're thinking, what's the sign of your kingdom? What's the sign of the end of the age? But he's telling them all these other things that are going to happen. Then it gets really personal. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Well, that's attractive, right? That's something I want to sign up for. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Man, this is such a downer. But what Jesus is letting them know that it's not what you think. Many things will have to happen long before the kingdom comes in its fullness. Then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's the end? When Jesus does return, when Jesus does come the second time, because it's at his second coming that all the things get rectified that are wrong. All these things will be fixed. And then he, he adds this, and this is real important. We talked about this last week. This gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the message that Jesus preached, John the Baptist preached, and every one of the apostles preached long after Jesus left. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This, this passage is so critical. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached, proclaimed throughout the entire world, and then, guess what? Then the end will come. See, we have a job cut out for us. We, we looked at that 2 Corinthians 5 passage last week that our task is to reconcile lost men to God by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the good news of Jesus. And, and so the, he tells them, you've got your work cut out for you. Your job is to continue to tell of the kingdom and the king and leave the results up to God the Father who will bring the kingdom in its fullness through his son at his second coming. So he says, and then the end will come after these things are done. Paul writes to the Romans, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. And he's, he's writing to Gentiles. This is important to understand. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. Here's Paul, a Jew, a former Pharisee, who's been converted to faith in Christ, based on that Damascus Road experience, and he's telling these Gentiles in Rome that, hey, hey guys, 
the Jews, my people, have hardened hearts. They refuse the Messiah, but it's not going to last forever. It will only last until what? Until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. There, there is a number of Gentiles, non-Jews, who will come to faith in Christ, and only one person knows that number, and it's God the Father. But this passage seems to indicate that there is a number who will come to faith in Christ before the end comes, before the Messiah returns. Listen to this from George Eldon Ladd. He says, The hardening of Israel and their rejection from the people of God is only partial and temporary. It will last until the full number of Gentiles has come in. See, Israel is, is kind of on the, the side rail. It, it's like you've got a train track and they've been put on a side rail and the church is now on the main rail. But there's a time coming when that will change and Israel will be brought back. They will be included once again. God has not given up on them. He will keep every promise He's made to them. Right now they've rejected the Messiah, but the day is coming when they will receive Him. George Ladd goes on and says, When His purpose with the wild branches, the Gentiles, has been completed, He will turn again to the natural branches, the Jews. The veil will be taken away from their eyes, and they will believe and be grafted into the people of God again. Thus all Israel will be saved. See, God's not done with Israel. Many things have to happen before the end comes. If this had been Jesus only coming, then the majority of the Jews would have died in their sins eventually because they rejected Him. But see, Jesus came, they rejected Him, He took the message to the Gentiles, He left, and one day He's coming back, and when He comes back the second time, He will rectify this problem with Israel. God will prove to be faithful to His people. Paul writes to the Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. See, the day is coming when we will all be one. There will no longer be this designation of Jew and Gentile. But for right now, the Jews are separated out because they rejected the Messiah. They refused to accept their king. Paul goes on and says in Ephesians, For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in Himself one new people from two groups, together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of His death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Now keep in mind, this is Paul, who's a Jew, who's come to faith in Christ, and he's writing this passage to predominantly Gentiles, and he's saying that Jesus Christ by His death on the cross has now made a way for Jews and Gentiles to be united. How? Through faith in Him. But at this point in time, when he writes this letter, many, if not most, of the Jews living at that time are not in a relationship with Christ. They're still living according to the law. They are still rejecting Him as their Messiah. They're not part of the family of God. They're of the seed of Abraham, but they're, they've missed the one thing that could make them right with God. They've rejected it, and that's Christ, faith in Christ. But see, the cool thing about the end is all of this gets rectified. They, they will be given, so to speak, a second chance at accepting the one who they rejected.
And it all takes place in the end. But see, when the disciples hear this phrase, the end, they think one thing. They think about the end from their viewpoint. And what Jesus is showing them is something that they don't want to see. It's unattractive. It's unappealing. It's, it's dark. It's foreboding. It's, it's something that is scary, not attractive to their senses. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to see all of this. But see, Jesus wants them to know that this kingdom that you long for will eventually come, but it's not going to come now. And it's not going to come in the form that you're expecting because these things are going to have to happen first. Certain things are going to have to take place. And, and again, if you read through chapter 24 of Matthew, he, he drops some major bombshells on these poor guys. He goes on and says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now that, that phrase, let the reader understand, is really for our benefit, for those who would read this long after Jesus said it. Matthew includes this little paragraphical statement to, to say, or parenthetical statement to say that you, you need to listen to what Jesus is saying because this is for you as well, whatever century you live in. And it most certainly applies to us. See, he says there's going to be some things happen. Some of these things are going to happen in the not too distant future, but they also have far distant ramifications, that now not yet aspect of all prophecy. See, Jesus is prophesying about the future. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Now again, think like one of the disciples who's hearing this for the first time, sitting on the Mount of Olives, and trying to take in all this information, it, it's an overload. You guys think my lessons are full? My lessons are hard to, to, to kind of get your head around? Think about this. This is an, an amazing just fire hose of information that Jesus is dumping on these guys. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world and never will be, he says. In other words, this is going to be a degree of tribulation like nobody has ever been seen before and will never happen again. This tribulation is, is such that they can't even get their heads around just how bad it's going to be. Things are going to get worse for these guys in the not too distant future. But he's talking about way into the future, the end, when things will get remarkably worse than anything anyone could imagine. So this is an incredibly bleak picture. Things are going to get worse before they get better. What did they want? They want everything to get better, not worse. So this is counter to what they're wanting. And Jesus is describing unprecedented trials. Listen to what he says. Such as not, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be again. So We've seen a lot happen in the last year and a half. We've, we've seen a pandemic. We've seen hundreds of thousands of people die from COVID. We've seen people suffering from, from all kinds of issues related to the pandemic. And yet nothing we've been through, nothing society, humanity has been through to this point is anything like what Jesus is describing. See, the end is going to be marked by 
incredible, radical suffering. It's basically end of time stuff, apocryphal, end of the world kind of stuff. And the disciples don't understand it. They can't fathom it. But the key is they'll never live through it. It won't happen in their lifetime. It's not happened in my lifetime. We've been through a lot. We've been through world wars. We've been through all kinds of trauma. We've been through all kinds of earthquakes and famines. And, but we have not experienced what Jesus is talking about. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand, that they will see a partial fulfillment of these things. They will see the temple destroyed by the Romans. They, they, will, they will see all kinds of tragedy take place in the years ahead. And Israel to this day is still suffering in many ways. Persecution, hatred, anti-Semitism is at an all-time high in the world today. They're hated by the nations who surround them, just like it's always been. And yet these men would only see a partial fulfillment of all these prophecies that Jesus is laying on them in chapter 24 of Matthew. They would experience tribulation. Jesus says this in verse 9. He, he says, you will be put to death. Tradition says that most, if not all of the disciples died martyrs' deaths. Nations are going to hate you for your faith, he tells them. And that's true. And that's true today. That most of the world, most of the nations hate Christians and all that we stand for. Even our own country is growing in its hatred for and animosity for Christianity. He tells them that many of you are going to fall away. Man, we're seeing that happen today in our day when people are falling away from the faith. They're bailing. They're giving up. It's not working. He tells them that others are going to betray you. Those who you thought you could trust are going to betray you and turn on you. And the disciples would see that. Some would be led away by false prophets. After Jesus left, there would be other people who would come and say that they were the Messiah who had returned and they would lead people astray. We have people today who claim to be speaking for God and are leading believers away with, with false gospels and false truth. And then he says, you're going to see a rise in lawlessness. Have, have we seen that? You bet. Did things get better after Jesus left for the disciples? Did anything change in Rome? No, we talked about it last week. Everything remained basically the same. And Jesus said, it's actually going to get worse. And the love of many would grow cold. You know, one of my greatest concerns as I look at the church today is, is how many of us have lost our fervor for the things of God. We, we've stopped going to church. I, I run into people all the time and say, yeah, I haven't made it back to church yet. I'm, you know, we're still kind of watching online. Hey, I'm glad you have that capacity. It's the whole reason we're filming this. But guys, you've got to be in community. You've got to be around other men. This is not the way it was meant to be. This is a wonderful thing that we get to do. Technology is a cool um, tool that we can use, but it's not to replace the gathering of the saints together. And many, as a result, are growing cold. They're losing their enthusiasm for the faith. See, Jesus is painting this bleak picture, and it's the very thing he told Timothy, his young protege, would happen. Listen to what he says. In the last days, there will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. Sound familiar? Sound like he's reading our mail, watching our social media feeds? 
They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Well, good luck with that, right? How do we stay away from that when we're surrounded by it? And the sad thing is, it's not all out there. Some of this is in the church. Some of this is among people who claim to be godly, but lack the power, the Holy Spirit, to truly make them godly. Well, Jesus goes on, and He talks about this incredible time of tribulation. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now He's talking about cosmic, cataclysmic type stuff, right? Stuff that's really hard for us to fathom, but these are going to be dark days. And then he says, a sign will appear in the heavens, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming, parousia, but second coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, what the disciples want to see happen in their day is going to happen in this day, at a later date, at the end when He comes again, when He comes in His second coming, He will come in those days. And see, we live in a time when we would love to see heaven come to earth. We would love to see all the social ills fixed in our, in our day. We would love to see people loving one another. We would love to see the church growing and prospering and making a difference in this world. But guys, we got to keep our minds set on that those days are yet to come. What we long for is going to come, but it's not now. It's going to come at a later date. See, he says those days. What days? Certainly not the days the apostles lived in. Certainly not in our day. We've not seen any of this happen. We've not seen the second coming of the Lord. We've not seen Him bring His kingdom and power and might. We're not living in a time of justice and righteousness and peace and prosperity. And we won't be until He comes again. Yet He says, all these things have to happen before the end comes. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And then the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. See, we, we have to live with that mindset. We have to live with the expectation that it's not now, but it will come. We do get the joy and the privilege of living in the kingdom as citizens, but as Jesus says, you know, we're, we're sojourners, we're aliens, we're, we don't belong here. We belong in the kingdom to come, the final kingdom. We're on loan here, so to speak. So this idea of the kingdom of God is, is so important for, for us to understand. Now, I've given you a handout in your notes, and there's, there's three different versions of it, and I'm going to concentrate on one because this is what we believe as a church. It's the, what's called the dispensational premillennial view of the kingdom of God. You can look at those others, and if you want to talk to me about them, I'll be happy to try to explain them. But this is what we as a congregation believe. This is what I believe. And, and so this chart, I'm just going to go through it briefly to give you some kind of a context. We are living here. Now, we don't know where along this, this timeline we truly are, but we know we're living in the church age. Jesus Christ died he was resurrected. He ascended on high. The Holy Spirit came, and that became, became what 
we call the church age. We're living in the church age, somewhere along this line. And we know that there's going to be, we believe in a rapture of the church. Jesus Christ, according, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is going to return for His bride, the church. And He will lift us, He will rapture us, snatch us off this planet, leaving only behind those who are not in a relationship with Him. Now, there are different views of the rapture. Some believe it's pre-tribulation. Some think it's mid. Some think it's at the end. We believe it's pre. That once the church is removed, and the reason we believe this, if you remove the church and believers who have the Holy Spirit living within them, you've basically vacated the premises of all restraint, Christians and the Holy Spirit. We're the only thing holding back total chaos in this planet. And you may think, well, we're not doing a very good job, but just imagine what it's going to be like when we all vacate, when we're all taken away. It's going to be all hell break loose. And that's what the period of tri tribulation is. It's a literal seven-year period when everything's going to go south. There's not a believer on the planet. And so everything's going to get really squirrely really quickly because the church has been removed. And, and so this, this period of tribulation is going to come to an end because what's going to happen is at the end of the seven years of tribulation, guess who comes back? That's the second coming. That's when He comes back. When everything is at its worst, He comes back. And it's then that He sets up His millennial kingdom. It's then that He imprisons Satan. And then He sets up His rule on David's throne in Jerusalem, just like was promised in the Old Testament. He will rule for a literal 1,000 years. We believe that. That's why it's called the Millennial Kingdom. He will set up a time of righteousness and justice because He, the Son of God, the King of Kings, will sit on the throne and rule in righteousness. Now keep in mind, there will be lost people on the planet all during this time. There will be believers on the planet. And so you'll have this, just like today, you'll have believers and unbelievers living, but they will have for the first time ever and only a fully righteous King, and it will be Jesus Himself. And so you'll have this really strange mixture of both. But here's what's really interesting. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released. He's imprisoned. He will be released. And these people who've been living under the righteous rule of God, these unbelievers who've gotten to see what true righteousness really looks like, what true godliness looks like, and a king who lives in perfect harmony with God the Father, they're going to rebel yet again. And, and Satan will lead them in a rebellion. He'll lead the nations in a rebellion against Jesus. And he will defeat them, and then he will bring about the great white throne judgment. He will judge the nations. And all those who have rebelled against him, all those who, who have rejected him over the centuries will be dealt with. And then Satan will be imprisoned forever. And that ushers in this thing called the new heavens and the new earth. He will wrap everything up. He will fix everything that is broken. And so I want to take Mr. Peabody and Sherman's Wayback Machine and I want to reverse engineer it and I want to jump forward. And we're going to end by looking at the book of Revelation when all things will be made new. And I want you to listen to these verses because they're so incredible. These paint the picture of the kingdom to come. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God is going to remake everything. He, he's going to destroy 
that first creation, and he's going to remake it. He says, And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. See, that's the key. When this day comes, when the end comes, and the, the Messiah returns back to this planet, and he defeats the forces of evil, and he, he sends all those who deserve to go to hell right where they belong, including Satan and the Antichrist, and he sets up this millennial kingdom. There's, there's going to be an incredible time afterwards when God remakes everything. Everything is made new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. I have no idea how this happens. I have no idea how long it takes. All I know is the scriptures tell us it will be made new. It goes on and says, He will dwell with them. He who? God. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of that's gone. We're not up in some ethereal place in the clouds, sitting there with harps. No, this is on a renewed planet sitting in the midst of a renewed universe. And it goes on and says, He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, John, who's chronicling all of this, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To be thirsty, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You see, the beginning and the end, we started with Genesis, and now we're fast-forwarding to the book of Revelation where everything is rectified that is broken. Everything that needs to be fixed, everything that has been cursed will now be blessed because God will do it. He says, I am making all things new. When? In the end. When it's time for the kingdom to come. And I love what it says in verses 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now I want you to catch this. This is so important. People will not be cast into hell because they do these things. In other words, if you, if you practice homosexuality, that does not condemn you to hell. If you are an adulterer, that does not condemn you to hell. What condemns you to hell is refusing the Savior. It's not your sin. It's refusing the solution to your sin problem, Jesus. That's what condemns them. So don't get all puffed up and go, yeah, these people really deserve this. No, they, like you, at one time refused Jesus. But out of God's grace, you one day accepted Him. And so... We need to understand that our job, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, is to reconcile these kinds of people to a holy God by introducing them to the solution to their problem. So he goes on and says in verses 22 and 24, I saw no temple in the city, the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, but its light will... By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. See, this is an incredible time. The gates will never be shut. There will be no reason to protect anybody from anything because there will be nothing to harm them. 
There will be no night there. They will bring into it the, the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, this is how it wraps up. This is how God corrects everything that's broken and restores the glory of all that he has made. When he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, he will now be able to say, it is indeed good. Why? Because his son came back and finished what he started. See, I love how the book of Revelation ends. It says, he who testifies to these things says, and this is Jesus. See, this is the revelation of Jesus given to John. Here's what he says, surely I am coming soon. And I want to end with this last statement. And I want you to think really seriously about it. John's response is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Do you say that? Do you think that? Are you longing for Him to come again? Do you understand that all that's broken around you will never be fixed until He returns? See, that's the kingdom. That's the hope we have. Not that everything's going to be rectified here. Not that everything's going to be fixed on this planet. It will one day, but only when he comes again. So next week we're going to talk about what do we do in the meantime. We're living in a time when he hasn't come back. And so what's our job? How do we live as ambassadors of the king? But for this week, I want you to think about these questions. Why is it so dangerous to misunderstand God's divine timeline for the coming of the kingdom? Why would that be so risky for us? And we do it all the time. We get the timeline wrong. Secondly, look at Revelation 21, 9 through 21. What's all this fantastic imagery meant to tell us about our future home? It's imagery. It's, it's, it's hard to get your head around. And I don't think it's telling us that this is exactly what it's going to look like. But it's trying to describe something pretty important that we need to get our heads around. And then finally, why should all, dis all the discussion of the coming kingdom prompt us to say with John, come Lord Jesus? Why, why should that be the most common thing to come out of our mouth when we look at the world around us? Because we know that's the solution. Well, Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the willingness to listen to this lesson. And I pray that this week, as they think about these questions, talk about them with their friends, their wives, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the reality that you will one day fix all things and Jesus Christ is coming again and there will be a fulfillment of the kingdom just as you've promised. And we long for that day. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week for Lesson 8.